HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live of the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. Uh, our engineer today is Joe Galarraga. Thanks, Joe, for making us sound good. And uh, we're here on heritageradionetwork.org. Um, check out the website for more episodes of Cutting the Curd, as well as lots of other interesting food-centric radio. Um, so today's episode is... Um, a little bit different than our, our episodes that we've been doing in the past couple weeks. We're here with Lauren Melodia, who is the uh, one of the founders of Milk Not Jails, or maybe the founder. Um, Lauren, are you the are you the only founder, or do you have uh, partners in crime? I've got some partners in crime. Nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, thanks for having me. Um, so, Milk Not Jails is um, a really interesting organization that I feel like. You know, just the name alone provokes question. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, what Milk Not Jails is all about? Sure. Um, I think we picked the name with the intention of provoking conversation because um, a group of us had been working on a lot of different social justice campaigns. Um, I spent a long time working on criminal justice campaigns with prison families and formerly incarcerated people um, at the Center for Constitutional Rights. And I also spent a lot of time uh, trying to get fresh produce into Bed-Stuy, which is where I've been living. Um, so I've been working on both of those projects with a lot of different people and got interested in the ways in which the same people were involved in these very different issues and thought that they might be able to become each other's strategic allies. Um, and to just kind of explain it, Geographically, uh, you know, in New York State, we've got the majority of people who go to prison come from urban areas like Bed-Stuy, like East New York, 
um, Harlem, um, and even other urban areas upstate. Um, but the vast majority of the prisons, 90% of them, in fact, are upstate in districts that are uh, rural, primarily rural districts. Hmm. At the same time, we saw that, like, we didn't have any fresh produce in bed So we started a CSA project, and we started taking field trips to our CSA farm in New Paltz. And we would hear people on the bus talk about how they'd never been upstate uh, except to visit someone in prison. So I started thinking, like, wait a second, these are the same people... And they're all kind of struggling with different economic and social issues. Let's try and combine forces here. So Milk Not Jails was born out of that. Um, And and an intention to kind of build some sort of movement that could support different issue projects and different communities. Um, And we are primarily concerned about how the state invests policy and tax dollars into the prison industry as a rural job provider when they could instead be building a healthier economy that's focused on agriculture. Um, And Milk Not Jails is kind of the way that we kickstart that conversation by coming up with this absurd statement that people want (laughs) to ask, what are you talking about? (laughs) And then, you know, that's where I bring in all the facts that I just brought up. That's really interesting. Well, I, you know, also the first time I heard that, I was kind of like, huh, what? <laughs> yeah. How How is that the alternative to jails? You know, yeah. but it really does make sense when you start breaking it down that way. Um, well, maybe um, you can just start by um, explaining for our listeners a little bit about the history of prison development in New York State. Um, and like you said, um, you know, where these prisons are built, why they're built where they are, and um, who works there and who, you know, is incarcerated there. Sure. Yeah. So um, New York State and the nation as a whole have seen a dramatic increase in incarceration over the past 30 years. Um, And um, kind of the question came up in the 70s and 80s when there was a rise in incarceration due to the um, imposition of these really strict uh, drug laws called the Rockefeller drug laws here in New York State. Um, So those... The Rockefeller drug laws had these um, strict mandatory minimum sentences for anyone found with a small amount of drugs on them. So we had a lot of drug users going to prison as well as, you know, small time drug dealers. So and anyway, it's kind of like the three strikes you're out thing. Or is this even more severe than um, well, three strikes you're out comes from California, but it's it comes from the same idea, which is like, let's just be really harsh with criminals. And that's how we'll curb crime. So we've had 30 years of that kind of law, you know, three strikes you're out in California, things like the Rockefeller drug laws here in in New York. And we've seen that it actually hasn't worked. It hasn't curbed drug use or drug sale. Uh, it hasn't really stopped any of the major, major drug cartels. You know, the drug war has essentially been a complete failure. But what we do have is we have tons of people in prison who... For really minor offenses. Minor offenses, you know, and we're seeing now with all of the information coming out about stop and frisk here in New York City that, you know, it's not even people getting caught selling drugs on the corner. It's people who are getting harassed by the cops who are stopping and searching them illegally and finding small amounts of marijuana on them. You know, so we have a lot of people going to prison for stuff like that. And with a rise in incarceration rates um, about 30 years ago, Mario Cuomo, our previous governor, um, you know, was kind of trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do about this? We're locking people up. Where are we going to put them? We need more prisons. And a bunch of 
rural districts kind of became the the playground for building these new prisons. Um, those towns had already uh, seen a lot of economic downturn in the 70s as well because of the global food market. You know, we had a lot of food production going overseas or out of state where you could find cheaper labor. You know, this is the beginning of really globalization, the 1970s. So we're seeing a lot of food production being outsourced, a lot of manufacturing being outsourced. Um, upstate New York had kind of had an easy time before that in terms of economic development. You know, the Erie Canal was this man-made uh, waterway to ship cargo from the Northeast to the Midwest. So for a really long time, uh, New York State didn't have to really work that hard because they had this competitive advantage in the market where you could ship cargo really fast along the Erie Canal. But things like the automotive industry and the development of the U.S. highway system um, which really did. I mean, I think the interstate that. system was started in what, 1956 yeah. with Eisenhower. Yeah. yeah. So that also changed the landscape of upstate New York. So we're seeing highways being built, food production being outsourced, manufacturing being outsourced. By the ni- 1970s, 1980s, when we needed to build more and more prisons to deal with all these people who were getting locked up for having small amounts of marijuana on them, you know, these these poor rural towns is is... Uh, the location where the prisons got built. And the idea was that prisons would be the new economic driver in those towns, you know, that that not only would there be construction guard jo- or construction jobs, guard union positions, but that there would be spin-off economic activity that farmers would be able to have a new place to send their product, that there would be new laundromats, new hotels, you know, but it People hasn't People coming happened. to visit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That, do you think there was really ever, I, I just hadn't thought of it, that there was really any ever hope of, um, of local farms producing food for prisons? Well, I don't know. I mean, some of the farms in New York State had prison farms, actually. Uh, there were 12 of them. They got decommissioned a couple of years ago mm. due to budget cuts. But there was production happening on farms, and, um, and a lot of local farmers participated in those programs or used processing facilities at some of the correction facilities. Ah, so there was definitely a relationship. I don't know how much um, they specifically targeted farmers to try and win their political support when prison construction was beginning. But there was definitely an idea that local business would have a new client by building the prison. So, hmm. you know, being in a rural area, what are the, you know, the majority of your other local businesses are, are farms and farm producers. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that's just really interesting. Um, because I guess on the face of it, a farmer who's been farming for, you know, generations as most of these farms have upstate, I feel like farmers, um, in general can have the problem sometimes of just doing what they do and not in sort of burying their head in the system, which especially when it comes to milk, um, leaves them really powerless because um, they're just selling their milk to the guy who comes with the truck and yeah. the price is dictated by somebody else. And when the price keeps going lower, then, you know, they really have no um, no power. So that's an interesting thing to think that, you know, the prison farms could have been a really interesting program. But like you yeah. said, didn't didn't quite take off. Um, so why do you think that the politicians were favoring the prison system over farms and over um the specifically the dairy industry in New York was it simply a matter of um, market forces being at play, like you said? You know, trucks were making it cheaper for products to be brought in from somewhere else, or do you think there were other factors that were at play that were like making them say, "Hey, 
Let's build these prisons up here. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of uh, decisions and conversations that were had that we don't have any public record of, you know, so it's kind of hard to sort out exactly what the motivations were and still are. But um, I think that, uh, you know, politicians have access to state programs and funding and one of their biggest concerns is making sure that people are employed locally. You know, mm-hmm. it's always a big issue for them. Well, sure. So, they, they're not going to get elected again. If yeah. yeah. There's high unemployment in their district. So I think when there's opportunities to create publicly funded programs that provide jobs locally, it's something that politicians are going to run towards compared to agriculture, which is in the private sector or other businesses that are in the private sector. You know, they don't have as much control over it and there's not as much of a guarantee. Sure. So, you know, it creates this this safe opportunity for them to produce local jobs, even if those jobs don't have a lot of growth potential. And and upstate New York, it's not even just the prison system, but state jobs in general um, provide a lot of employment in upstate New York. I used to live in the North Country in the Adirondacks, and I believe 40% of the people were employed by by the government in that area. There's wow. a rapid population loss in that area, and not very much industry. So most people, you know, or almost half of the people are employed uh, at the county or state level. Sure. So any new big public project coming in like that is probably going to receive a lot of support from the community as well, because if that's where everyone's already kind of looking to get employment opportunities and to, you know, support their families, then that's probably, you know, um, a pretty popular thing. Um, So, the state, maybe we can just talk a little bit about um, the state of dairy in New York in general. Um, we've done we've done a couple shows about this already, um, and it just seems like New York, like most other places in the country, is experiencing a rapid loss of dairy farms um, every year, more and more. And I don't have the exact statistics. Um, there's a woman out there. Her name is Lorraine Lewandrowski, who's mm-hmm. um, I think. Um, and a New York state farmer or something like that. We'll have to look it up and, and tag it properly, but on Twitter, she's extremely prolific. Yeah. I think she's New York farmer, New York farmer. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. NY, not New York spelled out just NY farmer, NY farmer. And she, she is like a, an ace about collecting and tabulating all these facts. But, um, we were saying that, you know, she, when she was on the show, one of the most recent opportunities for dairy farmers in New York has been this big yogurt boom. Mm-hmm. That's been happening in the state, which is kind of interesting, um, but also, you know, doesn't totally address the problems that right. that the farmers face. Yeah. Yeah. The yogurt boom is inter- interesting. Um, in some way, it's happened at the same time that we started this Milk Not Jails campaign. So there's so much media around it that people are like, oh, that crazy idea, Milk Not Jails, it's actually real <laughs> in upstate New York. There's a lot of new yogurt plants, but... Um, we've met with farmers in the area where the Chobani plant is that are frustrated because there's definitely an increased demand for their milk, but they're not getting an increase in price. Right. And so, you know, which is why ironically there is a yogurt boom here because the federal milk price in New York state is still so low. Yeah, exactly. And so some farmers are frustrated that it's kind of eating up all of the milk in the area, you know, and and perpetuating this problem of a low price of milk for farmers. So they're working a lot harder, but they're not necessarily making any more money. And uh, I was just in Albany this past week. Milk Nut Jails had a bunch of visits with politicians. 
And there's a new kind of package called Grown in in New York that a bunch of Republican state senators are behind. And their prescription for the dairy industry is to increase the herd size. And I feel like it goes hand in hand with this yogurt boom where they're like, let's just get these farmers to pump out more commercial milk from these cows so that Chobani has enough milk for their product and Chobani can make increase processing plant jobs and increase profits for themselves, but it's not really helping. It doesn't the trickle farmers. down to the farmer. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And we've seen that that's already, that that's an ineffective solution because when farmers invest in um, increasing their herd size to the capacity that they're probably talking about, they're also investing in infrastructure for their farms, which make it so hard to run their farms. I mean, the equipment that's needed, the facilities mm-hmm. that are needed are so costly that it really puts the farmers over a barrel where, and, and, and taxes them, you know, sort of emotionally, physically as well. Because like you said, you know, you're milking these cows twice, sometimes even three times a day, Yeah, you know, if they're on an eight hour milking schedule and, um, that prescription we've seen already that was prescribed already. Yeah. I feel like in the, in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. And that's what led to all this backlash against, uh, RSB or RBST and, right. All, all these other things, because if farmers are just about producing more, 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 yeah. eventually that system is going to break down. Right. And meanwhile, we have farmers like Fred Barrington in Columbia County. We just met him recently. He um, ships his milk off, but he saves about one day work- worth of milk to bottle glass bottled milk on his farm. But he doesn't have the money to pay for a proce- processing facilities on the farm. So he was bottling his milk at Milk Thistle down the street. But milk, milk thistle went out of business like a year, two years ago now. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we see him. He's struggling. He's trying to find new ways to increase the amount of money he's getting per hundred weight by creating a local initiative where people can purchase local fresh milk. And now he can't find a bot- bottling plant anywhere near him. And so it seems like the state could do a lot more by just increasing farmer um, access to processing opportunities you know, uh, exactly. Cause those bottling machines are incredibly expensive Yeah, and the logistics, you know, if, if the farmer's worrying about making the milk, you know, and, and transporting it somewhere to have collective processing facilities would make so much sense, so much sense to be yeah. able to do some value added stuff. Yeah. Um, well, we have to take a really quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk more with Lauren Melodia from milk, not jails. And, uh, so stay with us. This one's called Favorite Flower by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. 
you know, HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a member-supported nonprofit organization. If you like what you're listening to, go to our website and click that donate button. Become a member and get special discounts, invites, VIP treatment, t-shirts, and more. Support us in our mission to bring you the freshest food content in the nation. All right, we are back on Cutting the Curd. Uh, my name is Ann Saxelby. I'm your host, and I'm here today with Lauren Melodia of, Wil- or, uh, of Milk Not Jails. Um, and Lauren, what's your website if people want to check it out and learn more about your guys' work? It's milknotjails.org. Milknotjails.org. And you guys also have a Facebook page, right? Yeah, we have a Facebook page, and we're also on Twitter. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so when we before the break, we were talking a little bit about the state of dairy in New York. Um, and uh, I guess I want to return to that just for one quick second, because um, you said that you recently took a trip to Albany mm-hmm. to sort of advocate for um, these dairy farms and that politicians were excited about the yogurt boom and wanting to increase, encourage farmers to increase their herd size. Was there any other um, conversation there that was sort of interesting to you? Or do you think politicians have any other sort of interesting ideas surrounding dairy and agriculture upstate right now? Or uh, In general, I don't think politicians have that many interesting <laughs> ideas. <laughs> but we brought some interesting ideas to them. And they were receptive to them. So that's exciting. And um, what were you guys advocating for? So Milk Nut Jails is, uh, as I mentioned, we are a statewide grassroots uh, alliance and one of the things we're trying to push for is for New York New Yorkers to support their local dairy farms. But we know that we can't just get a bunch of people to pay for more expensive glass bottled milk. Like there's there's forces at play that make it hard for New York dairy farmers to survive. There's systems in place, and so the other thing we're trying to do is push for policy change. So we brought together a bunch of farmers, criminal justice advocates to figure out, you know. Milk Not Jails is our demand. What are the policy prescriptions behind it? And we pulled together an eight-point policy platform. So the idea there is to really demand that uh, politicians stop investing in the prison industry and use the cost savings, because incarceration is actually so expensive, use those cost savings to support farms. And the ways that uh, we're working with farmers to change some policies is, one, to just make sure that the state continues to and expands funding for the Farmland Protection Program, which helps farmers uh, make sure that their farms, when they sell them, um, are kept as agricultural land and they're not subdivided for new homes or... um, Sold off for fracking. Sold off for fracking, exactly. So that's one idea that we have. Um, The other one is to make sure that we get New York food in New York schools and public institutions. Um, And this is something that a lot of politicians are interested in, They tried to push to require all public institutions to purchase just 20% of their food from New York State Farms. Last year, they tried to push for this, and they didn't get enough support for it because of the budget implications, because it actually costs more to buy locally, and that's fine, you know, but it it would require an increase in, in food budget for those public institutions. So right now, what they're looking into is doing some sort of overview and analysis of current ways that public institutions source food to to make some new recommendations towards that effort. Um, and then the other things that Milk Not Jails is proposing to support dairy farms is, one, to increase the availability of raw food, pro- raw milk products. Um, so right now, if you want to buy raw milk, you have to go to the farm. Uh, farms that have raw milk permits can't produce certain raw products like raw fresh cheese 
that they would like to produce that they think there's consumer demand for. And then the last thing we're trying to do is get the state to investigate Dean Foods, which is a multinational corporation that controls 70% of milk sales in the Northeast region. We believe they have a monopoly and that they're driving the price that farmers um, receive for milk down. Mm. So we want the state to take some action on that. And so as Dean Foods, do they have a lot of plants here in New York State? Yeah, that's one of the ways that they control the uh, price and availability of milk is that they've bought up a lot of processing plants in certain areas. So even if you're not selling your liquid milk to Dean Foods, you your, co- your cooperative might have to process it at a Dean Foods plant, and they jack up the price there. Mm, mm, I see. I see. Yeah. Um, well, those all sound like great initiatives. And as we were talking before, um, you know, to get New York food into New York institutions and to reach that 20% goal, it seems like part of the, part of the, a big part of bringing the cost down would be to invest in these infrastructure pieces, processing plants, like we were talking about, um, and encouraging, uh, small business too, because, you know, running a distribution business is a really hard thing economically to do so you know as a small business business owner myself i know how difficult it is to get funding for like small investments that we want to make in our own company so i feel like in this economic climate especially having support for people who want to become entrepreneurs and start small business yeah um, to support that industry would be great yeah we've been having a lot of good meetings with some farmers in the catskill catskill region recently that want to kind of come together to cooperatively process some small batch products and work with us to distribute and market it. But we can't find a processing plant that is really even open to the idea of letting us do anything there. So, you know, the processing world has kind of shut its doors to farmers that want to take initiative or be entrepreneurial in that industry, which is just really unfortunate. It is. It is. Well, I feel like production is also... um, it's tricky, you know, and, and when yeah. you're going into a place that's like, you know, got its wheels totally greased to make, you know, industrial sour cream or cottage cheese or whatever it is, um, there are also regulations surrounding those products that would make it difficult probably for them to work with smaller scale right. producers. So, yeah, yeah it's kind of, um, it, it is it is an unfortunate thing. But it seems like things like that milk thistle farm, you know, if they're not producing there, that should totally be utilized yeah. as, you know, a space where absolutely people could make some of these things. Yeah. Um so you you have been talking a lot about, you know, the work that you do with um <clears throat> farms across New York State, um, with meeting with politicians about the farms. Can we talk a little bit more about the work that you guys do here in the city? Um do you do uh, any kind of education in New York City regarding why these foods are, are good for you or how these foods tie into um, this problem of milk not jails with, you know, f- with folks in the inner city? Yeah, we, um, we spend a lot of time doing education in New York City and other urban areas in the state um, because we're trying to build this alliance. We're trying to build a new urban-rural alliance where urban and rural people can get to understand each other's communities a little bit better. And so one of the things that we try and do is just impress upon New Yorkers that New York is a dairy state. You know, a lot of people don't know that at all. I didn't know that, frankly, when we started the campaign. I had just heard a lot of reports that New York dairy farmers were struggling, 
but I didn't know the you know that the majority of farms and agricultural sales in the state are in the dairy industry. So I think we're number three, right? It's California number one for fluid milk, Wisconsin, and then New York. Well, when we started the campaign three years ago, that was the case. I've heard since then that we've slipped to number four. Behind who? I, maybe Idaho. I don't know. I was going to guess one of those big Western states yeah. that shouldn't have cows anyways. But, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's cheap. And so they, they find right. ways to do it. Um, interesting. Okay. But anyways. But that just, you know, demonstrates that we are losing dairy farms rapidly. And so one of the ways that our organization feels like we can correct that is just convince New Yorkers to buy New York made dairy products. So we do a lot of education. Um, we have a set of carnival games that we've created to explain some of the geographic and political issues that we're talking about that we bring to parks and block parties. Um, We toured it with Circus Amok last fall through New York City Parks. Um, So we're constantly educating people about where does your milk come from, where are the prisons located, trying to connect these issues. And our hope is that Milk Not Jails is a marketing tool that can compel a lot of New Yorkers in urban areas who are concerned about and dealing with incarceration on a daily basis, really compel them to purchase locally and and think about, you know, supporting upstate farms because it has such a big domino effect on public policy that impacts them, you know? Right, right. I feel like, and, you know, who am I to say, you know, how you should run your organization, but, you know, as you're saying with your CSA um, program, taking people up to visit farms seems like it could be, a very interesting piece of, um, you know, I know that the logistics of doing that kind of thing is really tough. We used to run farm tours through Saxelby cheese as well. And it's yeah. like a lot of logistics, but I, I would love to see sort of, you know, the conversations that would happen between these dairy farmers and people from Brooklyn, you yeah. know, who, whose lives really do have a lot to do with one another as it right. turns out. Exactly. You know? Yeah. When we started the campaign, we our, our um, big thing that we did was we organized ice cream socials. And we went on a tour throughout the state where we invited people to come have free locally produced ice cream and meet the farmers who made the ice cream. And this is the area where we kind of brought up this idea, the political analysis behind Milk Nut Jails to gauge if people were interested. But we did get the opportunity to bring farmers and consumers together in Buffalo, in Ithaca, um, in Albany. You know, uh, we haven't gotten a farmer to come to any of the ice cream social events here in New York City. It's hard because dairy farmers, you know, they got to milk their cows twice a day. So it's hard to leave the farm. But but we've been trying to take what stories we have learned from them to those events, you know, in an effort to try and bridge that gap. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so now let's talk more about um, the marketing and kind of um, the business side of things. You said uh, that you're starting kind of a fledgling distribution company to try sure. and get some New York uh, upstate milk um, for sale here in uh, in New York City. Yeah. So, well, you know, the goal of this campaign is really to get more support for criminal justice reform upstate in those rural districts. Um, where those dairy farms are, and to demonstrate that there can be an alternative economy. You know, that we don't need to rely on prisons for rural employment. We can really support our local farms. So uh, we do our education and our advocacy work, but we also really wanted to try and figure out how can we really support these dairy farms. And so last year we started a not-for-profit marketing and distribution company. Any farm that supports the political platform of Milk Nut Jails can sell their products through our company. And we've been doing a lot of um, sale for producers that already bottle their stuff on the farm. 
Um, we've been running a dairy share program that any CSA distribution site in New York City can purchase a milk share, or yogurt share, butter share through. Um, and we also set up buying clubs at workplaces uh, where people, again, can can purchase those products as a subscription or, you know, every month a la carte. Um, that's just one way that we're helping dairy farmers. And it's gone, you know, it's definitely helped us get the foot in the door. Mm -hmm. Uh, we had a pretty successful year last year just with that small effort. And so now we have more dairy farmers wanting to figure out how, how we can work together to help them increase their sales and their, their profits. So we're also looking into a couple of other avenues like selling milk to public schools or charter schools um, working with supportive housing institutions that feed people every day, uh, independent coffee shops, you know, pizza places. We think that every bagel shop in New York City should be using New York State made cream cheese. Um, so we're investigating a lot of different opportunities on the market end and building relationships for these farmers in urban areas. And now we're kind of exploring some ways that we might be able to do some joint processing because... Only 10% of New York State dairy farmers process on the plant, you know, on the farm. The rest of them, even if they support our campaign, we can't tell anyone where to buy their product because... They ship their milk to the co-op. Exactly. And then it gets, you know, mixed in with everybody exactly. else's. Yeah. yeah. So we're trying to find ways that we can pull um, milk from a variety of different farms to produce some of those products that we currently can't really provide. You know, we have um, a bunch of school chefs and um, supportive housing institutions that want milk from Milk Not Jails, but they need, you know, half pints. They don't have cups at the school. Mm. So we need to figure out how to meet some of the infrastructural needs on the consumer end at these institutions in order to really bridge that gap and, and make that connection. Yeah. But that's amazing that those conversations are happening and that you're making headway there. Yeah, it's, it's cool. awesome. Very cool. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. A half hour always goes by too quickly. But um, thank you so much, Lauren, for coming and talking with me about this. And um, I really hope our listeners will check out um, your website, milknotjails.org. And uh, we'll follow your ice cream socials around the city wherever those will happen next. That's yeah. really exciting. Thanks so much for having me. All right. We'll be back next week with another episode of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.